Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. This is part two of the series on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities on the plain. And this will get into some of the biblical and geographical details connected with locating Sodom and the cities on the plain. And they argue for the, the traditional position that the cities on the plain are located in the southern basin of the Dead Sea. And they talk about some of the problematic issues related to the northern view uh, that was the basis for uh, the report published in Nature magazine back in September of 2021. So have a listen to our first episode if you want to get some of the background for this one. And otherwise, we just ask if uh, you could do us a favor for those of you who are keen in terms of listening to this content about geography, culture, and history of the Bible. If you could give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, that would be super helpful. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. I am Kyle Keimer, and I'm joined today by my co-host, there we go, uh, Chris McKinney. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Kyle. How are you? I am good. Um, today, we're going to pick up our the continuation of our series on Sodom and the cities of the plain. And so, I think it's been a long time coming. People are excited to hear the conclusion to this. Uh, part one came out a little bit ago, and now we're we're going to finish it up here. And just to bring us back and kind of contextualize what we talked about, we looked at in the first part the of this series, we looked at the kind of traditions around the location of Sodom. And we, you highlighted really clearly, Chris, that there are basically three different main traditions, that it could be on the northern shores of the Dead Sea or just north of the Dead Sea, it could be to the south of the Dead Sea, or it's actually within the Dead Sea, kind of in the southern, southern basin, uh, the shallower basin. And you argued from the the um, extant historical sources, the traditions that we have, even from some of the, the archaeology and the historical geography, that really the northern position for Sodom doesn't have much to commend it, unfortunately, even though we know that there are some claims that this is where Sodom should be located. Really, it doesn't match up with the data we have. The southern tradition is well a bit stronger, but still doesn't doesn't fit all the pieces. The one that has the least amount of issues, and unfortunately is the most problematic for us from an archaeological perspective, is that it actually is kind of buried within the Dead Sea, and that seems to fit with what we have from the biblical texts, uh, which we're going to really focus on today in a bit more detail, from the traditions and even from kind of geographic markers that we might want to talk about, particularly the location of a site called Zoar, which is the one remaining site. That we that we do kind of have access to. Yeah, that's that that's that's right. Yeah. So with with all that said, kind of as that background, what we want to do today is really delve into the biblical text and and look at the the specific um, passages that deal with with Sodom and see what else we can glean about its location, about the history, about um, yeah, situating this site within its context. So, Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of like lead us through and kind of get us kicked off here. 
Yeah, yeah. This is um, thanks for the, giving us the overview and reminding us where we where we've been um, as we've started all these new series uh, on on script biblical world. It's fun to uh, go in all these different directions, and that kind of mirrors the way. Uh, at least I uh, tend to work on different projects at the same time. Um, ideally, you would want to do part one, part two, um, you know, consecutively. But uh, we've been a, been a bit of a break. But in any case, uh, those of you who have listened to part one um, will benefit from um, from the context, even if you want to go back and listen to that one. Or if you haven't listened to that one before, it's certainly worthwhile to uh, to go back and and kind of set the stage because one of the biggest things and that we're, one of the main reasons why we're talking about this is because of a nature report that came out, um, or I should say, an, an archaeological report in Nature that dealt with a discussion of a big kind of cosmic event um, that they claimed destroyed Tel El Hammam in around 1600 uh, BC, and this was cast as evidence that Sodom and the cities of the plain were destroyed by a meteorite. Um, And the fact that this made um, popular news uh, across the board, as well as being published in such a prestigious journal as as Nature, uh, meant that it would be worthwhile for us to spend some time looking into um, not only that claim, which we actually sidestepped a bit. Uh, that's not our expertise to to talk about airburst events. And we pointed in our in our last episode to um, a number of different studies that have uh, criticized that on scientific grounds. But we, what we're trying to focus in on um, is the historical geography. Can it po- is it possible that Tel Al Hammam is uh, Sodom or one of the other cities of the plain? And the answer, uh, if you were listening in in part one, was no. It, it, it is impossible, in my opinion, that Tel Al Hammam is uh, the site of Sodom. And one of the the main reasons, as we'll see, has to do with the site of of Zoar being located definitively in the south. Um, that is uh, south of the the Dead Sea. And then one last, uh, just kind of general general discussion point. And Kyle, you did a great job you know, kind of outlining these three these three positions. We do have the disadvantage uh, according to the view of inundation, that is that the cities of the plain are inundated underneath the Dead Sea. We do have the disadvantage of never being able to uh, locate them because they're not only under silt and debris, but we also have the advantage of never having to worry if they can be disproven <laughs> because the whole point is that the Bible is basically saying that they are overthrown. Uh, we even have that language. It's not just that they're hit with a meteorite, but they're literally overthrown. They're uh, destroyed. And we have all these this, this language in Genesis, which points to their total destruction. Um, and if you really think about it, you know, the, the Dead Sea itself, even by the term Dead Sea today, it has all of these images that speak to uh, total destruction. Uh, that we see across the biblical literature, that we see in some some later texts, uh, much of which we talked about uh, last time. Now, in this episode, we're going to focus in on uh, the main biblical texts themselves. So we've essentially started with 
stuff that were on, you know, less firm ground or, you know, kind of the discussions around where this might be in later sources, uh, in the biblical text, even some some material looking at uh, it from Christian traditions. But now what I'd like to do is, is start by looking at you know, what does the, the book of Genesis and Deuteronomy have to say about Sodom and Gomorrah? And uh, you might think that we'd start in like Genesis 13 or 14, where we have some of these um, events mentioned, but actually the first reference to Sodom and Gomorrah is in Genesis chapter 10. I love Genesis chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Who doesn't love Genesis chapter 10, right? I mean, you might be thinking Genesis chapter 10, that's Abraham. It's before Abraham. It's a list of a bunch of names. And uh, it's not everybody's favorite chapter. I don't think any kids grow up, uh, those kids who have to memorize scripture, do it by memorizing Genesis chapter 10. But it's a, it's a fun section of scripture. In Genesis chapter 10, there are these 70 nations that are the descendants of, uh, of Noah, either Ham, Shem or or Japheth, but embedded in that section, once um, the line of Cain is, or I should say, Canaan is uh, is laid out, we have a territorial description of where Canaan was, uh, dividing it between uh, Sidon in the north, uh, and then going all the way down to the south as far as Gerar and, and Gaza. And in the, in the section I'll read is Genesis chapter ten. 19 through 20. So it says, in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza. And so it's it's coming down from Sidon. It's going towards the coastal plain. The area of Gerar is a bit debated, but most people think it's Tel Haror, which is in, in the vicinity of, uh, well, we won't talk about Ziklag, uh, but it's in the vicinity of the western coastal plain and where the Negev and the coast meet. Gaza, everyone agrees, is where the Gaza Strip is today, uh, even if we don't know exactly where the ancient site was, a few different uh, views. And then it says, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. And then it says, you know, these are the descendants of, of Ham or Ham, uh, which is the word for hot. It's referring to people that live in warmer regions. But in any case, it's clear that these uh, five cities are, 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 are laid out as kind of the southeastern part of the, the land of, of Canaan, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. And we have this type of boundary description mentioned a number of times. I mean, you could look at Numbers chapter 34. You could look at Joshua chapter 15. Uh, you could look at Ezekiel uh, towards the end of that book, um, where it's even the hypothetical borders of the kingdom. It almost always is, when it's talking about this southeast-south border, it's talking about the southeastern part of the Dead Sea going across through the wilderness, through, through the Negev highlands. And so even already, uh, if you're if you're thinking that this is a boundary description that refers to the northern part of the Dead Sea, uh, that doesn't fit in with what we see geographically in these other geographical texts. And so um, we're, we're not going to talk specifically about what each one of these places are. We'll do that uh, maybe a little bit later, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Uh, but this is also a reference to that we're not exactly clear on for the term Lasha. Lasha. And we don't have, I won't spend a lot of time on this here, but there's essentially two ideas 
One is that this refers to lashon uh, or the, the 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 tongue called in Arabic the lisan of the uh, of the Dead Sea. In other words, this would be referring to these five cities, or I should say these four cities, because Zoar isn't mentioned in Genesis chapter ten. And then it's saying that it goes as far as the bay, the South Bay of the Dead Sea, which is one option, or it could just simply be, you know, where the Dead Sea is, you know, and that's exactly what you have, for instance, in uh, Joshua chapter 15, that the southern border of, of, of Judah goes from the Eastern Sea, from the, from the Lashan or the Lisan in Arabic, and then cuts across to the Negev highlands with the ascent of Akrubim and eventually on to the Brook of Egypt, uh, which is uh, Wadi El Arish. Now, that's one idea. The other idea is that uh, Lasha refers to Laish. That would be the ancient city of, of Dan, Tel Dan in the north. If that's the case, then it would be a kind of circle where you would have Sidon in the northwest, you have Gerar and Gaza in the southwest, and then it circles through to get to the four cities of the plain, which would be in the area of the Dead Sea uh, in the south, and then all the way to the back to the north, northeast in this uh, in this scheme, uh, and getting back up to Tel Dan. The answer is we don't know uh, which one of those is correct, but regardless for the the, the question at hand. Uh, at least in this text, it seems to be fairly clear that it makes much more sense that these four cities should be located uh, along the border of the land of Canaan, as we know it from other texts, which would be, again, the southern part of the Dead Sea. Yeah, Chris, I think this is a really important point that no matter w- how we interpret Lasha, um, it, we're still looking in the same geographic location for these these cities. And as you just said, they, they are the southeastern kind of area, border, region of this land. And so again, looking for them at the northern shore of the Dead Sea just doesn't seem to factor into this text, um, let alone some of the other ones we're going to look at. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and, and I think that one of my, my big criticisms of um, the overall identification um, connected with Tel Hamam and the cities of the plain is it looks for proof texts that seem to fit the, the evidence, whereas it doesn't incorporate all of the material um, to, to make the most, that makes the most geographical sense. And that's really the only way that historical geography should be done, that you have to make it fit all of the evidence. And in my opinion, the idea that there's a northern Sodom and Gomorrah fits a very small fraction uh, of the evidence, whereas the rest of it just doesn't fit at all. And uh, and so this is one of those points. This the southeastern boundary description, uh, and we we've listed off a few of these that that, uh, that 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 we can that we can compare to. Now this next text um, is going to deal with a, a couple of issues that um, are front and center in this debate. Uh, one of those is the the location of of, of Zoar. And the other is the reference to the so-called Plain of the Jordan. Sometimes that'll be capitalized in, in English translations. The term is, is Kikar, the Kikar Yarden, uh, or the Kikar of, of, of the Jordan. The, um, and this is something that I, I think is actually one of the more egregious parts of the position. 
that we'll we'll get to later. And if I don't if I if I don't do that, Kyle will remind me uh, to come back and uh, deal with this circle uh, of kikar, the kikar of the Jordan, because that's what kikar means in modern Hebrew, not in uh, necessarily in ancient Hebrew. So this is what it says in our second text, Genesis chapter thirteen, uh, ten through thir- through thirteen. This is a very important uh, text where Lot and Abram uh, are going to divide the territory. Uh, They're up in the area of Ai and Bethel, um, where Abram had been before, a chapter earlier, before he descended into uh, Egypt. It's a very high, elevated region, um, and they're looking out uh, over this uh, vast terrain. You can see nice views to the west and especially nice views to the south, uh, but most especially nice views to the east because this overlooks the area of the plain of Ai and Michmash, and you can very easily see the Jordan Valley, the area of, of Tel el-Hammam, which is in the what we call the plains of Moab, and you can also see large section of the Dead Sea. And it's, so it's, it's here where they're, where they're standing that uh, we have this division between Lot and Abram. One other contextual detail, Lot is the nephew of Abram, who traveled with him from uh, Haran to the land of Canaan, and is therefore his de facto heir uh, at this moment. But by dividing up their Beit Avs, their uh, patriarchal households, uh, it's going to mean that Lot is no longer the uh, presumptive heir uh, of Abraham. Um, and we'll know that from you know from later chapters, which are going to talk about how Abraham doesn't have any sons. And the heir is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his household servants. And so this is a big deal in the larger context of, of Genesis that they're having this division. And the reason given is that there's not enough territory for the livestock. There's not enough territory for their herdsmen to, to live together alongside one another up in the highlands, again, in the area of Bethel, in the area of Ai, and what's going to become later southern Ephraim and, and northern Benjamin. So Lot's given a choice, and this is what he says. Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan, that's the Kikar Yarden, was well watered everywhere, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. Now, just real quickly there, um, it defines the plain of the Jordan uh, as being well watered and compares it to Egypt, which has... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it before. This this nice river, uh, the Nile, uh, and then and then basically the Garden of Eden, right? It compares it to it doesn't say Eden, but it refers to the idea of the place. Just a few chapters, they had a few chapters earlier they had left, which was defined by four rivers. You know, the four rivers that go and, and f- are formed from a single river in the Garden of Eden. So wherever this is, this plain of the Jordan, it's very well watered. And to put the cherry on the top or to, to locate it directly, it says it's in the direction of Zoar, which if you'll remember last time, and we'll even give more information this time, Zoar should be located unequivocally um, in the southern Gore, Gores Sophia. Uh, we'll talk about um, which particular site it might be um, in the south. Um, but one of the the geographical realities of uh, the area of Zoar is that it uh, includes several wadi systems that drop down and drain the Kirak Plateau from particularly Wadi al-Hasa, 
which is, I think, wrongly identified with Nahal Zared, but that's a whole other discussion. But it's this main wadi system that brings all of the rain uh, in the southern part of Transjordan and deposits it in this wider plain uh, in, the, in the southeastern part of, of, of the Dead Sea. Um, and it, before it drains into the southern basin of the Dead Sea. And there are, you know, you can visit it today, and until today, it's very lush, very green, because it receives uh, a bunch of rainfall, or I, I should say a bunch of rain, a bunch, I can't say, a bunch of, of, of sun, uh, and no, very little rainfall. It's just extremely uh, lush. If you've seen kind of the fields of, of Jericho, uh, in and around where the springs are. It's very similar to that. It's also very similar to what you find at Tel el-Hammam, which is a very lush area as well, which has the same kind of geographical realities, uh, where Transjordan, the, the watershed, the way it works, is that the rains reform on um, on the Transjordan watershed and then hit the that, that mountain on the west, and it drains down to the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And it creates these places along the uh, Jordan Valley, uh, along the east, that are, that are very lush. And so Zoar is one of those. And the point is well made that uh, Egypt and the Garden of Eden are like Zoar. I mean, if you put all those together, it's, it's, it's a rich area. And it, it says, and it's careful, and the, and the text says, this was before Yahweh had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the point seems to be here that this area was much more lush, uh, according to the text, before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And it makes sense then that this would be in the area of Zoar, which again, if we, we talked about last time, the southern basin is, is much more shallow and at different times would actually uh, not even have water in it because of, of the lack of rain um, at, at different times. So the, the southern basin of the Dead Sea if it ebbs and flows in terms of in terms of level, it's the one that dries out. The northern basin is much uh, much deeper. In general, it's fourteen hundred feet below sea level beside the the Dead Sea, and it's another fourteen hundred feet below that level to the basement level of of the Dead Sea. Whereas the southern basin, uh, it varies in depth, but it's much more shallow, uh, much 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 more shallow. And so it says, so lot, and this is the part that. I think is the only real piece of evidence that supports a northern view or allows for a northern view. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, that is the entirety of the key car of the Jordan, uh, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against, against Yahweh. Now, and so the, the, the real key that you get from this, and again, I, I've said that Zoar is mentioned. We know exactly where Zoar is. It's not a debate. We have maps showing it from uh, the Medaba map onward that it refers to the areas to the southeast of the Dead Sea. And so the, the real key issue to define is where, what is the plain of the Jordan in terms of the uh, wider biblical literature? How does the Bible talk about the Kikar Yarden, um, the area of the Jordan? Because actually, if you read this text, we have the same type of, of detail about both Sodom and Zoar. That is to say that Lot 
uh, looked in the area of Zoar, as far as Zoar, and he also settled as far as Sodom. And th- those terms, as far as, are going to be used a number of times in the text that the text that we're going to be looking at to describe a the, the furthest extent of what could be seen of an area. We're going to see this especially when we look at Moses's view of the land, his final view from Mount Nebo, which we'll look at in just a second. Yeah, I think that I think those are just really interesting um, and significant points to make out, Chris. And when you really do look at the the text, and particularly if if anyone out there knows the Hebrew, right, when it says that uh, that Lot journeyed eastward, it says Mikedem, so literally kind of from from the east or you know kedem is is toward the, toward the east um but it doesn't say that that's it doesn't associate that specific direction with sodom or zoar because those references as you kind of highlight only come later in in uh in this passage where it says they went then after going east they went as far as so it's almost as if the text is telling us there is or implying perhaps that there's a change in direction that they went to the east because that's the way but then you, you, they went to a different direction as well. And then, yeah, when we actually look at the what the Bible tells us about the key car, this kind of comes into finer resolution, I think. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that when we talk about Abraham, let's just think about Abraham for a minute. Abraham lives in lots of places. <laughs> he's at Shechem, he's at Bethel, he's at Hebron, he's visiting Melchizedek at Salem in Jerusalem. He's in Beersheba, he's going to Egypt, he's in Gar- he, he moves around. Right, uh, and he's a nomadic or semi-nomadic, everyone to define him, uh, entity that is living as a sojourner. As the Book of Hebrews talks about, you know, as a sojourner in the land of promise. And uh, there's really no reason to think that Lot doesn't do much the same thing. In other words, that as he's moving east with livestock, with and that's the whole reason why they're splitting in the first place, is because. <laughs> they have too much livestock, that they're going to pasture this good. And that's actually the whole point of this passage, is that Abraham gives Lot, um, he had the real right to do so. He's his superior in age, as well as status as the, you know, the, the patriarch of the family. He gives him the first choice uh, and shows the humility to do that. But the choice isn't just about places that they're going to build a city in or live in a house. It's about pasturage. And there's no question if you're looking at Bethel and you're seeing that the area around Bethel, that if you look towards the east and you see the green on the eastern side of the of the Jordan Valley, which again includes Tel al-Hamam, that it's an area that is very rich and very lush. And so from a strictly uh, logical perspective, Lot's choice makes uh, makes good sense. But it doesn't mean that as soon as he goes down from Bethel, uh, he's just going to remain in that one particular location. In, in fact, it talks about Zoar, which again is in the south, as well as uh, as well as the place that he eventually ends up, and we're going to find him later in the site of Sodom. Um, in any case, well, but- and let me just add one thing there because in you know to go further with this in Genesis nineteen and verse twenty nine, it actually tells us exactly this. It says God destroyed the cities of the Kikar. And then it says cities where Lot had lived. So plural, not just city, but cities. So it's it's giving, it's implying again that again he is a pastoral nomad or a nomad of some sort, and so he's moving from place to place. He's not just staying in one place. And it, again, it all fits uh, what we're talking about here. Yeah, and actually, I think one of the kind of implied things. I mean, this Genesis is really flexible. You you can take whatever. 
<laughs> whatever bias uh, you bring to the table and make it fit your view. Like there are those who want to say this fits in really well with the intermediate bronze age when there's nothing going on in the highlands. Uh, there are those that are saying that this is a, an implied argument for nomadic life versus city life. Uh, and that's really the, the whole thing behind Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, I don't really think either one of those things works all that well from, because based upon what we know from Lot, yes, he's going to settle in the area of Sodom, but who's to say Sodom itself is, is not, you know, more of a semi-nomadic um, dwelling. Pl- I mean, it, it's, there's no, I mean, they don't talk about huge fortress or huge city walls or anything like that. So, I mean, again, yes, it shows the, 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 the wealth of this area, but how do you define wealth? Is it is it grand palaces and uh, lots of silver and gold, or is it defined by the main economic resource, which is which is sheep and goats, uh, which is what Lot possesses in abundance? Uh, in any case, the main talking point that we need to uh, dive into is this question of the key car. Where is the key car? And for that, I'd like to read uh, what Collins Stephen Collins has written in a recent publication about the key car. This is what he says. The key car, and he puts in parentheses, the disc of the Jordan is the widened and roughly circular circular alluvial plain north of the Dead Sea, roughly the southern third of the Jordan Valley, about 25 miles in diameter. Key car means circle or disc. He says it's erroneous to translate this as valley or plain. Um, it is non-geographically translated as talent. Uh, we see this, for instance, in, in Kings, where it talks about uh, Solomon's uh, talents, or flat bread, thus alluding to its wealth and breadbasket nature. In Genesis, it was a socio-political entity called the land of the Kikar, anchored by the city of Sodom, which he, of course, identifies with Tel el-Hammam. I think in this paragraph, I just simply disagree with basically everything he says, um, <laughs> because I don't think that Kikar means like the way, and again, the way he translates this and then portrays it is literally a circle uh, on, on the ground between the area of Jericho in the West, uh, maybe as far as North as a Dom, but slightly South of that. And then as a circle kind of wrapping around the area of the Dead Sea. And I think that, uh, okay, that is one idea, but I, I think it's really actually bringing to bear modern Hebrew in into the text where kikar is much more used as a shape. Uh, and kids, of course, learned that in school when they learn their, when they learn their, when their shapes. Uh, or you, when you come, what I always think about when I hear this term is when you were driving in Israel and um, they didn't really want to put in a traffic light, they put in a roundabout, which is called a kikar. Uh, so that's what I kind of think about when I hear the term kikar. But that's not at all the way the biblical text uh, defines uh, kikar. And even if we just leave aside the, the statements made here that the Kikar refers to only the area of the northern part of the Dead Sea, I, I think outside of the book of Genesis, but even within the book of Genesis, it's clear that the Kikar Yarden is another term for the Rift Valley. In other words, that it is the plain of the Jordan. And there's different terminology that that is used in the biblical text for this, for specific parts of it. But if if I'm just answering this from what we can read in the wider biblical text, the Kikar Yarden 
is the entirety or at least the 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 massive area of the Jordan Rift Valley between the area of the Sea of Galilee all the way to the uh and including the Dead Sea. Now, here's another thing we could even talk about. These terms, I actually think this one is actually pretty well defined based upon the text that we have, and we're going to get into those in a minute. This area is also known as, as I said, the Jordan Rift Valley in terms of a modern term, but other specific parts of it are known by other terms. For instance, uh, unquestionably, Tel el-Hammam is an important site. And unquestionably, it's situated in what we call the plains of Moab, which is why uh, many people identify it with the site of Abel, uh, Abel Shittim, which is mentioned in the book of Joshua and also in Numbers, where the Israelites are going to uh, encamp before they, before they cross over. And it should be noted that, that he also, Collins also identifies with this identification, uh, but that's not enough. It needs to be both Abel Shittim and Sodom, which again, is also problematic because people remember where Sodom is. Remember what we talked about in episode one. People remember that when they go to the Dead Sea, they're saying, this is Sodom and Gomorrah. So you have to assume that when they're living at Tel Hamam, uh, and they're, they're calling it Abel Shittim, you know, the plain of the acacia tree, uh, that they're okay with living in Sodom and just forgetting that it was called Sodom. And at the same time saying, look how bad Sodom and Gomorrah was. It just doesn't make a whole lot of uh, logical sense when you when you think of it that way, and so I'd like to. What I'd like to do is, uh, we could also talk about how essentially in the publication he puts or they put the meteorite shower right over the key car. So, so the meteorite, you know, it was a it was a circle, it was a target, and that meteorite just nailed it uh, right in the middle, and then uh, Tel Hamam, of course, was destroyed. And it's almost it's almost ironic when you look at the publication in nature because it goes kind of goes out of its way to exclude any part of that meteorite shrapnel from getting to the south because we can't hold to this uh, southern view. And I, again, I'm just um, I'm struck by the the problematic nature of uh, of this viewpoint and so let's let me, let me just uh, just jump in so again i think just a, a really it's a really important thing as you were talking earlier as you read his description and kind of you know we we have modern hebrew and you know a lot of the terms are are similar to biblical hebrew parallels but at the same time the language has has evolved and changed and so you know, we can't just take the specific semantic range of of a term today and assume that that's what it meant in antiquity, uh, because we know in innumerable instances that that this isn't the case and that the, the nuances change. And so this instance of Kikar, where in this particular reference by uh, Collins, he's saying it, it has to mean circular disc. Well, actually, again, it, yeah, in modern Hebrew, this is the main meaning, but not in biblical Hebrew. And actually, if you look at the the broad use of it, wherever it is, I mean, it, it really isn't the main, main meaning. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I mean, so you can't, the point is you, you can't just take the modern term and apply the semantic range to, to antiquity. We really need to be a bit more nuanced in how we're looking at uh, the specific uh, ancient language words. Exactly. And from just strictly from a topographic standpoint, it makes no sense to drop a circle on the northern shores of the Dead Sea when a topographic region is defined by its topographic features and the main topographic feature of the entire southern Levant is the Jordan Rift Valley. And so to just simply arbitrarily draw a circle 
around the sites that you want to identify with Sodom and Gomorrah is extremely uh, problematic. And it doesn't fit with other usages of the term. And it, there's no real reason, in my opinion, to talk about it as a uh, sociopolitical unit. If it is that, what it's really referring to is the cities themselves, which are entities within this plane. So what I'd like to do now, and I'll put this on the I'll put this up on the episode page, is I'd like, and I have a, have a map that basically plots all of the references to the key car um, in the Bible, uh, whether we're talking about Genesis all the way through. And the first of these is the one we talked about earlier, which is Genesis 13. And they're looking from the highest place of the area of Ai and Bethel. And they could clearly have seen large swaths of the Jordan Valley, including again, the area of Tel El-Hammam, the area of the plains of Moab, the, the Dead Sea itself. And one of the things, because I'll probably forget to say it later, I uh, actually did a viewshed analysis of where you can see line of sight from these different points. And if they were standing between Bethel and I, there's a kind of a semi-famous hill there called EP914, uh, which is a you know great name. EP, it means elevation point 914 meters. It's the high hill between this, uh, you know, between uh, I and Bethel, they could actually easily see all the way to the southern to the southern part of the Dead Sea, uh, as well as see over to the area of Tel El Hammam. So they could see as far as Zoar from the point that they're looking at. And regardless if you think the text is historical or not, that geographical reality matters uh, because it's basically saying that. Um, someone, when they're thinking about passing through this region, they would have a great view throughout this entire area. Uh, so that's number point number one. And we'll actually come back and uh, maybe say something else about that later, because the Genesis Apocryphon also makes this uh, makes this point. Well, they could see as far as, as Zoar, and they could see the whole plain. Again, if the whole plain is the Jordan Valley, there's few places that are better to see the whole plain from the area of Zoar in the southern part of the Dead Sea, and then really all the way westward, uh, or I should say northward, to the area of Zarathan and beyond. And again, you kind of lose it in some hills, but the point is the same, that you see this wide area. Then in Genesis uh, chapter 19, we have a reference to the plain when uh, Sodom is when Sodom is destroyed, and 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 we have it said by Lot. This is Genesis chapter 19 verse 17. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Don't don't stop anywhere in the plain. So it refers to the area uh, around Sodom itself. And in Genesis 19 uh, chapter 25, it says God overthrew the cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities. And there's another important text in Genesis chapter 19, verses 28 through 29, a text that's often overlooked. We have a couple chapters earlier, uh, or one chapter preceding this, when actually Yahweh himself visits Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre with these two other messengers they um, literally, Abraham goes and kills the fatted calf, gives them a water to wash their feet. This great scene of hospitality. After they're told that Isaac is going to be born and Sarah's laugh, uh, they, the messengers and, and Yahweh leave uh, and head towards the east. And when they do that, Abram goes with them. And they go to a place where they're looking down on the area of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end of Genesis chapter 18, as the messengers are on their way to uh, to Sodom, 
we have Yahweh and Abraham talking about this, and Abraham is cast in this kind of priestly role or intercessory role where he's saying, what if there's 50 who are righteous all the way down to, to 10, and we have God casting judgment upon the city. Now, the point is, though, is that they could see the vicinity of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and the, the best place to actually do this, which is where tradition places it, is a place called Bani Naim. And we'll see in Jerome, when he, when he visits the country with um, a, a saint, a lady named St. Paula, that they go exactly to this place and they talk about being able to see down and look towards Engedi and look towards Sodom. And that's a key point. Engedi is much closer to Sodom and Gomorrah in, the, in terms of the traditional locations in the inundated southern basin than it is in Tel Hamam. And so as we've seen, this is another indication that there's no traditional evidence or I should say there's very, very little traditional evidence which supports a northern position. But in either case, once the site is destroyed, once uh, once uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are overthrown, it is said that Abraham goes back to that location and sees the destruction and says, and he looked toward all the land of the plain and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain. Now, that's the last reference we have to the key car in Genesis. Now I'd like to take our turn our attention to another text that is often referenced by uh, by Collins in his in his discussion. And that is uh, a great text, Deuteronomy chapter thirty four, Moses's last view uh, of 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 Canaan atop Mount Nebo. Everyone agrees where Mount Nebo is. It's sort of to the northeast of the northeast of uh, the, the shores of the Dead Sea up, up in the mountains uh, along the edge of the Medaba Plateau. And it's this great overview that on a clear day, which you rarely have in modern times, but on a clear day, you have this just sweeping view of the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley, and, uh, and even over towards uh, the southern hills I've been told, I've never seen it while I was there, but you could see the outskirts of Jerusalem from there on, on a clear day. So it gives you a full view. And this is what it says. It says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab, which is clearly defined in Numbers and Deuteronomy to be the area of Abel Shittim, which is what Collins himself identifies at Tel Hamam. So he goes up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And so here it's a reference to a mountain, Mount Nebo, and Pisgah is just simply referring to the summit. And it's saying it's opposite Jericho. Now, Jericho is going to be mentioned towards the end, but it basically refers to, in this case, opposite the Jordan River. So if you're if you're standing on top of Mount Nebo, even on a kind of a crummy day, you can pretty easily see the plain around Jericho itself. So that's the first thing he notes and it's not actually his view. This is more in this in this first verse of a location. So it's saying we want you to know where Moab, uh, the plains of Moab are. We want you to know exactly where Moses is and thankfully thanks to lots of uh, pilgrims, uh, including uh, myself and others who have done just, just that, we can locate this uh, exactly where Moses' view was. But then we have the vision, the vision that Yahweh showed him. 
of all the land. And I'm going to just stop for a rabbit trail and a series of rabbit trails, because this is actually a very, very interesting language in Deuteronomy chapter 34. I think this is actually what you also have going on in the synoptic gospels when, and particularly in the gospel of Matthew, where it says that Satan leads Jesus into the wilderness and takes him up to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, they're all yours if you'll bow down to me. So we actually have Satan uh, acting like he's Yahweh and trying to tempt their their future leader and king without having to go through the trial that's ahead of him. So it's just a, a very, and it's, it's precisely the same place because we have Jesus in the Jordan sent off into the wilderness. Uh, it's the same context of Moses, Jesus, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, but that's, that's a, a podcast for another day. But it says, Yahweh showed him all the land, all the land. And there's a question here of, is this meaning that he has divine sight or is it actually stuff that he could see? And I, I think the answer is a bit of both. And, and let me just define, um, and, and again, we have to ask, are we meant to be looking at it through Moses's eyes? And the answer is probably yes, but we're also meant to understand that we're having a description of the entire territory. So it says Gilead as far as Dan. Here we have the first region. So if he looked on Mount Nebo to his right, which is to the north, he would see the dome of Gilead. He would see the limestone cliffs, nice forested area, that had fallen to the tribal allotment of Gad and Manasseh. But then it says, as far as Dan, that terminology, as far as, is just like what we read in Genesis, and it's going to define these different extreme points of his view. So Dan would be as far north as he could see. Uh, it could either refer to the place, you know, the, the actual ancient site, or just Dan's allotment. But the point is the same, is that it's, it's referring to the northernmost point of the kingdoms or uh, the area of where Israel is going to be. And here again, you have the same kind of anachronistic problem because Dan is yet to have gone into the land and lost his territory uh, in the Ayalon Valley and made it uh, up to the north, which is the same geographical problem you have in Genesis 14 with when Abraham visits the town named after his great-grandson. I think great-grandson. It's kind of hard, uh, but we'll leave that again for, for, for future discussion. It says, then all Naphtali, which is another northern region, this would be the area of Upper Galilee. And then, so he moved uh, to his right hand, and then he's sweeping around towards the north, and he sees the land of Ephraim and the land of Manasseh. So here it refers to the central hill country, which again, you can very easily see from Mount Nebo. Then it goes to all the land of Judah. So it's going towards the area of Jerusalem. And you can see this big block. So in these terms, he's referring to essentially the heartland of what's going to become the kingdom of, kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Then we have another Western, ex, uh, another extent point. It says, as far as the Western Sea, this is the Mediterranean. Could he have seen the Mediterranean from Mount Nebo? No, unless he had x-ray vision, he couldn't have seen it. But the point is, is that it's trying to tell you this is the extent of the territory that they're going to be given. Then it continues to the south. And if you stand on Mount Nebo on a clear day, you can see how it tapers off from the southern hills and drops into the Negev, which again is the area of uh, the, the southernmost part of, of, of Judah. Then the plain. 
and the plane. And so what it's doing is, is it's essentially mapping out this area of what he's actually seeing. It's going from Judah to the Negev and then the plane. So it's going from right to uh, going from, from north to due north to west to south uh, to due south, which would be Negev and then the plane, and then coming back to his own uh, position, which is, it says, and the plane or Kikar, that is the plane of Jericho which is directly in front of him. So it's wrapping all the way around and including this larger territory of the plain, which would have included the Dead Sea, the area of the Dead Sea, the area to the south. And it says, Jericho, the city of palm trees. And then once more, we have it stated as far as Zoar. And so what does that do? That tells you the southernmost extent of his view. So in the as far as uh, statements, we have as far as Dan, which would be uh, the northernmost point, as far as the Western Sea, which is the westernmost point, and as far as Zoar, which is the southernmost point. And so to say that he could only have uh, been referring to somewhere around Tel al-Hammam doesn't make, again, a whole lot of uh, geographical sense. And so actually, uh, Collins has, has used Deuteronomy 34 and said, this is a clear indication of how uh, Tel El-Hamam is Sodom. And I, I got to be honest, I don't see how that makes any sense, given the way that this text actually uh, flows. Yeah. And, you know, Chris, I think there's, um, you know, there's the, the terminology in this, these verses is really specific as well. So you mentioned the plains of Moab. Um, so we're looking at the northern, northeastern shore of the Dead Sea, basically. Then it mentions the plain of Jericho, and it, it refers to it as the Bikat Yerho, right? Not the not the Kikar, but the, the Bikat, the Bekah, like the, the valley of Jericho. So we're looking at the northwestern shore. And then it distinguishes so that's the distinguishing northern border, though, of the Kikar is the the Valley of Jericho. So clearly, the text, the author, the people in this time, did not refer to this northern part of of the Dead Sea as the Kikar. It's, it's that this is just not an appropriate termine, um, you know, a- attribution for us to consider. But in fact, the text very clearly says the Kikar actually runs from the northern shore, which is identified as the plain of Jericho, the plain of Moab, to Zoar in the south. So that is what is, in, in, in fact, the key car. Yeah, and, and at least I should say that is the key car of his vision. Like that he can actually see it, it because so if those are like the the contemporary texts, let's say, of early, you know, Israelite literature, there are actually some other ones that are uh, clearly, and these are completely ignored um, in the debate that clearly define the Kikar as the Jordan Valley. And the first of these is Second Samuel chapter eighteen, verse twenty-three. I shouldn't say they are ignored. What Collins will do is he'll say, "Well, in the uh, early period, the Kikar of the Jordan was a socio-political unit until it was destroyed by a meteorite, uh, and then later they referred to it as the entire Jordan Valley in these other texts." I would say that's pretty convenient to, you don't get to choose <laughs> um, the geographical terms. You have to make all of them work. And what we read in Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 23, it says, after the death of Absalom in the forests of Ephraim in Gilead, and don't let that terminology confuse you, the forests of Ephraim seem to have been either connected with the tribe of Ephraim 
or just a, a an identical unrelated term, but it clearly defines them as the area of Gilead. David is at Mahanaim, which is Tolul Dahav in the Jabbok River, and these events are happening well north of Mahanaim in the Jabbok River in the area of, of Gilead. This is, of course, the passage where uh, David stays at Mahanaim when Absalom is chasing after him, and Joab finds Absalom with his nice uh, nice locks hanging in a tree and uh, and turns him into a pincushion with three javelin shots to the heart. And so it refers then to the aftermath of this, where these runners run by the way of the key car. And where are they running? They're running along the eastern line of the Jordan River, or the Jordan Plain, which is well, well, well north of what uh, Collins and others have defined as the key car. We're talking 20, 30, 40 miles north of the northernmost extent of the key car, between the areas of essentially Jabesh Gilead, maybe west of there, and then dropping down to Mahanaim. And so another indication that the key car Yarden, uh, the, the plain of the Jordan, is much further north. But Actually, the, 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 the one that's even more obvious is in 1 Kings chapter 7, uh, verse 47, and in the parallel passage in Chronicles, where it says that Solomon cast bronze objects for the house of Yahweh in the Kikar Yarden. <laughs> okay, where does he cast these? Did he do it at Tel El-Hammam um, and only in that circle? Or did he do it uh, further north? Well, it says in the clay ground, which may actually be a, uh, a a hiding toponym, the the toponym Adam uh, or Adam, which is the the ford of the Jordan, but then it says specifically between Sukkot and Zarathan. Now uh, Sukkot is identified by most sane scholars with Tel Dir Allah, uh, or somewhere in the vicinity, let's say, somewhere near the area of the Jabbok River, and Zarathan is typically identified with Tel Asadea. In either case, once again, both of these are central slash northern parts of the Jordan Valley, well beyond what Steve Collins has said is a socio-political unit of a circle in and around Tel Hamam and Jericho. So if we look at the, the wider usages of this term, once again, the Kikar Yarden, or the Plain of the Jordan, is the Jordan Rift Valley, that at different parts in the narrative can be focused on to to talk about a specific point in the narrative. One of those is the reference to Absalom's death and the aftermath of that. Another here is the reference to the casting of bronze objects with very clearly identifiable uh, sites in, in that vicinity, which are clearly north. Whereas in the text that we'll look at here in a little bit, with uh, Genesis chapter 19, it refers to the Kikar Yarden, or the Kikar in the south, that would be near near Zoar. Uh, so, but the point is, is it's not a circle. That's not the point. It might you might say is disc shaped, but it does have a kind of roundish look to it when you think of the Jordan Valley uh, and this larger bowl that is defined by the rift. But we shouldn't use like uh, the meaning of the term to override clear geographical boundaries defined both in the book of, of Genesis, but Deuteronomy, as well as these uh, in 2 Samuel and, and 1 Kings. So I would say one of my biggest 
issues with this whole view is the very problematic way that he identifies the key car. I don't think it's at all sustainable with what you see in the biblical text. Well, and let me let me add one thing, and maybe you're, you're going to come to this in just a, a minute. But in um, thinking again about the specific location of Sodom, again, the texts give us the indication that it is near Zoar. And as we talked in part one, you know, Zoar, there's no reason to doubt that it's located uh, at the you know south of the Dead Sea. And we have all these traditions that make this connection and make it very, very clear. In Genesis 19, verses 19 and 20, when Lot is fleeing from this forthcoming destruction, he says, you know, I'm not going to flee to the hills because they're too far. Instead, I'm going to go to this this city. And it's... um you know, play on words. Basically, it's this little place that's uh, Mitzar, uh, which is actually where then we kind of get an, an etymology for Zoar. It's the little site that's that's nearby Sodom. It's close enough for, for uh, Lot to get to. And so th- here we have yet another passage that really ties the location to the south uh, and really creates, would, would be quite problematic were we to locate Sodom at the northern end of the Dead Sea. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that, like, look, we don't know where Sodom is. Like, we can't put a flag in the ground at an archaeological site and say, this is Sodom. But what we can do is we can, we can, and again, you know my view on it with, for our listeners, is it's, it's, <laughs> it's under the Southern Basin. I mean, that's, that's what the point of the texts are. But we can know where Zoar is. And we can define what the Bible says the key car is. And it's, and so what Collins and others have done is I think they've missed that they want the site to be Tel Hamam. And so they uh, have to, to what I think is misidentify and miscategorize what the key car is, but they also have to have Zoar be located somewhere else because it's really an insurmountable problem to say that where Zoar actually is, according to, an enormous amount of evidence, it can't be there in Sodom be at Tel Hamam. So they move it around. And it's been located at various different places and publications. And it's not a, a monolithic view. Some, um, and even early on, when this northern view started, um, I think one of the first people to hold to it was Sela Merrill, the American archaeologist slash geographer. He's well known in infamy for his poor heading up of the American Palestine Exploration Society, known affectionately as APES. And then uh, he was also, for, for, you know, for what it's worth, very anti-Semitic. Uh, but in any case, he's the one who kind of started this, uh, this view and kind of popularized it. And so he identified Zoar with a site along the northern shores. Uh, and there's been others looking for different Zoars. Some will even say maybe it's another site named Zoar. Collins has moved it to different places. I think right now he has it either next to either on the northernmost shore of of the the Lisan Peninsula, or he's put it at at uh, Kelleroy, where Herod the Great died. So th- there's this pull to to push it further further north, and we're gonna we're gonna get to that uh, a little bit later. And I just think that those two those are the, those are the issues. The issue is what is the key car, and I think that they're completely mis um, mistranslating it and misinterpreting it. And if Zoar is where everyone has always said it is, the northern view is impossible. But there's some other issues that I, I would like to delve into that may be of interest. The first is, and we've already kind of hinted at this, is the sometimes it's said that that Abraham and Lot couldn't have seen 
the area of the Lisan Peninsula, the area of of what we're calling the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, the inundated southern basin, or if you like the view that it's Babedra and Numeria, they couldn't have seen that from the area of Bethel. And the fact is, is that this is just not true. You can see on a clear day that vicinity, and there's actually nothing in the text that demands that you would need to see. Because <laughs> the point is, is that they're not saying I can see Zoar from here. Um, but even if they were, you can very clearly see that region based upon this viewshed uh, analysis that I mentioned that I mentioned earlier. Moreover, one of the uh, really interesting things about this is that in the Genesis Apocryphon, which is a later text that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it it talks about how um, Abraham actually went up to Baal Hatzor, which is just north of uh, Bethel and Ai. They don't call it Baal Hatzor; they call it Ramat Hatzor because they don't like Baal in their in their literature. Um, and and so it's literally the highest point anywhere in the central hill country. And he has this sweeping view of the entire landscape. And so what this shows is a a kind of tradition in in later literature, but I think a a good tradition that shows that the point is that they were at a very high and elevated position where they could see really anywhere they wanted to. And so both the viewshed analysis plus this text from the Genesis Apocryphon Clearly shows that that they could uh, they could see a wide a wide area, and I'll put some of these view shed items up on the, uh, the the episode page, showing that you could have seen either from a high point near Bethel and I or Ramat Hatsor slash Baal Hatsor, you could see both the area of the plains of Moab where Tel El Hamam is, and or the Lisan where we have you know the vicinity of uh, Zoar and the cities of the plain. Okay, so that takes us to our third text. We've talked about till now, uh, we maybe picked up a few along the way. Uh, We've talked about until now uh, the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, Lot's resettlement in the plains of the Jordan in Genesis chapter 13. And then our third text is the four northern kings invade Transjordan and the, the Negev. Now, this text in particular is extremely complicated with regards to identifying these characters with historical personages. I mean, there's a lot of debate as to what the background is. Essentially, what it seems to portray is four northern kings from Mesopotamia, or let's say the area of the north, coming up against the land of Canaan, conquering various uh, various places, um, and then eventually turning their attention to Zoar and Sodom, capturing Lot, and then uh, and then taking off where Abraham eventually gives chase, catches up to them, saves his nephew. And then uh, at the end of this, we have tacked on the Melchizedek episode. And just, to, just for the listeners following along, this is Genesis 14, in case that isn't um, clear. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know if I mentioned that or not. Genesis, Genesis fourteen. I'm not going to read the the whole thing, but what I'll what I'll I'll do is summarize part of it because there's some very important details in here. It talks about in the days of King Amraphel of Shinar. That term Shinar is 
uh, we have a, a beer in, in South Texas called Shiner. Uh, I always say it's not the beer. Shinar is uh, Sumer in, in biblical terminology. King Ariok of Elisar, King Keter Lamer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim. These kings made war with King Bera of Sodom, King Birsha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemeber of Zeboim, and the King of Bela, that is Zoar. So it talks about these uh, four kings making war against these five kings, these four kings of the north coming and fighting against uh, the cities of the plain. And we have Zoar uh, or Bela included here. Then we have, I think, what is perhaps the most important verse for defining where the cities of the plain are. And that is this verse. It says, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea. The Valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea. Now, this term, Valley of Sidim, is the place that they're fighting. We'll see later that this is also the place that they are uh, living in. And what it's saying is, is that the Valley of Sidim is identical with what the Dead Sea is going to become. In other words, the Valley of Sidim is a part of the Kikar Yarden, the plain of the Jordan, which is where the settlements of the cities of the plain are, that after the destruction becomes the Dead Sea. So it's, a, it's, it's an explanation of where this battle took place that is literally beneath the waters of the Dead Sea, which again is probably our most obvious, I think there's a number of other points of evidence you could point to, but this is the most obvious one that simply points out that the place that they fought the battle, the place that these cities were, is now the Dead Sea, which supports this inundated position, which is the traditional position, critical, conservative, and everywhere in between. This has been the dominant view because of this, uh, because of this verse. Well, they rebel. They served him for 12 years. In the 13th year, they rebel. And it says Keter Lamer, who apparently is the leader of this group, he uh, joins forces with these same group of, of guys and they, and they travel. And it mentions a number of very important geographical locations. I won't spend the time to read it, but once again, just as we have in uh, Genesis chapter 10, we have well-defined geographical areas and then all kind of coalescing to a point where they come to the vicinity of the Dead Sea. It says they go to Ashtarot Karnaim, which is in the southern Bashan, Golan Height regions. We know where this is. There's Tel Ashtara. Karnaim is uh, Sheikh Sa'ad. Ham, which is somewhere in uh, in the area of, of, of Gilead. Shevei Kiriatim, which is somewhere in the area of, of, of Moab. The hill country of Seir, which of course is the vicinity of where the Edomites are going to settle in Transjordan. El Paran, probably a reference to a lot, the site of, uh, of a lot, because it says it's on the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, that is Kadesh Barnea. And so they're essentially marching along what we call the King's Highway in Transjordan from the northernmost area all the way to the area of the Gulf of Aqaba, the Red Sea. They turn back up into Kadesh Barnea, where, of course, Israel will be later on. And then says they they turned and lived and went against the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar, which is either a reference to Engedi or a reference to the site of Tamar, which sits on the southern shores 
of the Dead Sea, some 20 miles to the south. Engedi also sits directly across the area of the Southern Basin. In either case, it only makes sense that when they're going to fight with Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar once more, that it refers to the southern area. There is no way they could actually get from uh, the area of either Engedi or Tamar across the Dead Sea, uh, the, the northern shore, unless they're either going in boats or cr- going all the way around to the east or to the north, because there's really not, unlike today, where there's a, a road, Highway 90, that runs across the, the much less filled Dead Sea, there's there's no ancient road that would have done that. You would have had to travel through the wilderness. So once again, this text makes uh, good sense that the, the, the location of the first battle is the area of the Southern Basin before it's inundated. The area of the second battle refers to the same location because it says that these five kings, they joined battle in the Valley of Sedim. And it goes on to say, the Valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits. And as they were defeated, some of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into these uh, into these pits. Now, that isn't necessarily, that doesn't really prove one way or the other, north or south, because the entirety of the Dead Sea is filled with bitumen or asphalt uh, pits. But the point is, the Valley of Sedim is well-defined. It's in the area of the Dead Sea. Geographically, it makes sense that these these kings of the north, after they've gone to either Engedi, which is sometimes called Hazazon Tamar, or the site of Tamar, a place called Inhatseva, that they would be approaching the same vicinity, which again is I'm interpreting as the area of of the Southern Basin. Now, um, this leads me to a couple of of problems, because we actually have not only this written in their uh, materials, we have them depicting this on some of the maps. In an atlas, they have a a recent book. It's a nice, handsome volume filled with a lot of nice material. But this, this particular map in particular all right, so this this map, especially, but also a couple other ones that relate to this issue, I think it, it shows some serious problems. And that one is the campaign um, of Keter Lamer against this area. And Sorry, it Chris, sh- can you just clarify which which map you're talking about for the the listeners? Yes, so so the map. Thank you. Uh, the map that I'm referring to, and again, I'll I'll, I'll um, I won't post this map, but I'll. I'll We'll post the, the literature you can look in. Comes from the Harvest Handbook of Bible Lands, and what it shows is the um, the kings of the north attacking and essentially taking a road across the Dead Sea, the western shore of the Dead Sea, which, as I mentioned before, is not a place that would have actually had a road because there are severe cliff lines that make it impossible to get from the area of the southern part of the Dead Sea all the way back around to the northern side by the um, by where, where Tel el-Hammam is. And so the traditional view of the attack where we have the kings of the north going to either, again, Tamar or Engedi, and then attacking the area of Sodom and Gomorrah in the south makes much more, uh, makes much more sense. Okay, in, in here I'm going to say uh, a few other things about the site of Zoar. Um, I'd like to spend just a few more minutes developing this a bit, a bit more. And here's what uh, Collins has to say about Zoar. Uh, he says that the famous 6th century Medaba map depicts the Dead Sea as it was during the Byzantine period. At that time, the Dead Sea level was at or near a historic low, 
with the entire shallow south basin completely dried up. The Metaba map has no Lisan Peninsula either. It only shows what existed in the 6th century AD, the capsule-shaped deep northern basin. Roman Byzantine Zoar was a deep water port of the southeastern corner of the northern basin, slightly south of the Arnon, Arnon Gorge. This reinforces the location of the much earlier Zoar in the same area. So what he's basically saying is that the Medaba map, which is a 6th century map of the land of Israel, the Holy Land. 6th century A.D. So, yeah, what sixth century eighty? Yeah, um, is a, is a map that that shows a bunch of different locations. Unfortunately, it's broken in different places. It's a mosaic floor actually on Mount Nebo, um, or near Mount Nebo, uh, in the area of of Medaba, that shows a lot of these locations. He's saying that the Dead Sea on that map is only the northern basin; that it doesn't refer to the southern basin because it was at that time a, a very low period for the Dead Sea. Now, the reason why he wants to say that is because on the Medaba map, uh, you have Zoar, like right where Zoar is now, in the area of um, of Goresafia, right next to Wadi el-Hasa. And uh, I, I really, this, this, um, this statement uh, is impossible. It, now, I'm not debating whether or not the Byzantine lake would ebb and flow in their times of drought. That That's certainly the case. But to say that, that Roman Byzantine Zoar was located where he says it was, which is something like 30, 25, 30 miles north of, uh, maybe it's not that far, 15, 20 miles north of where we know it's located is simply impossible. Uh, it doesn't It doesn't work at all. And for those, uh, others will say, you know, that we can't find Sodom and Gomorrah because we went and looked beneath its waters in a submarine uh, and looked for it. I'll refer to what we said earlier. It doesn't make sense that you would see it. Why? Because one of the things that we know about the Dead Sea is that it's constantly silted in over the ages. And so there's a lot of work that's been done at different places near uh, the shoreline of the Dead Sea that you can actually chart where this silting would have happened across different across different periods. And so to say that because we went in a submarine in the southern uh, in the southern basin and we didn't find the cities, well, you would never find that anyway because <laughs> if it's there, it would be below all of the silted these the, the silt that would have gone through there and drained to that area. Okay, now there's a number of different ways that we could dis, disprove the statement that the Medaba map only depicts the uh, northern basin. But the one I will the, the one I will use, I would like to get to, is the fact that he actually in this book he shows that the dried up basin. He, he has an outline outlining where the dried up southern basin is of the Dead Sea. And it includes, and it actually goes over sites that we know where they are. He has a, a dotted red line that goes to uh, the south that's over places that include Tamar and Moa. Um, and so to do this realistically, and, and again, I'll post this on the episode page, would mean that his southern basin that he depicts 
in again he's he's depicting where the southern basin actually is on the metaba map and he's saying it's dried up but where it actually is he includes an area that is like three times bigger than what the dead sea actually is including um the area of tamar the area of moa essentially halfway to the red sea um so it just shows that that he's not handling the evidence in a way that that fits you know, what the meta map is actually showing. We know where Tamar is. It's at Inhatseva. It's not in the southern basin of the Dead Sea. It's something like 25 miles to the south of, or maybe not, again, 15 miles or so to the south of, of, of the Dead Sea. And so this is, again, another problem of what we want to do is make sure that Tel Hamam is Sodom. So if it doesn't fit the the evidence that that we have, we'll just, you know, kind of cast that aside. And here we actually have a picture showing where Zoar is located, which is exactly where it is today on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea. But it's 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 actually more than that. It's both the location of the city of Zoar and a cave of, of, of Lot and his daughters, uh, which is depicted on the 6th century map and in recent years was, was excavated. And we know exactly where it is. And it's not where he says, just to the south of Nahal Arnon. It's it's located right where we see it on the Medaba map, which is to the southeast of the southern shore, or the southern basin of the Dead uh, of the Dead Sea. Okay, with that said, not, not to belabor the point too much, but we have a, a number of converging lines of evidence with regards to Zoar that uh, have been have been excavated in, in in recent years that show that the area of Gores Sophia was a very rich area in, in antiquity. Of course, we know this from some from some excavations where we have a lot of tombs and, and a number of early Bronze Age cities. Uh, but what's become clear is that there is a very nice Byzantine, a Roman Byzantine site called Kirbit Sheik Issa, which is probably the Byzantine city of, of of the Medaba map. We have, as I mentioned, the sanctuary of Lot or Dir Ein Abata. And in, in even more recent times, we've they've located Iron Age Zoar, because Zoar remains an important city in the biblical period. It's mentioned in Isaiah, it's mentioned in Jeremiah. It's probably also mentioned in Kings uh, when we have the uh, when we have some of the kings of Judah attacking this area, we have it with Jehoram and Amaziah, where they go against the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And one of the times that this is mentioned, it says the city of Zaire. But if you just simply um, repoint the, the 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 term, it's Zoar. And so there actually should be a fairly significant Iron Age settlement in this area, and that's what's been uncovered recently by in the excavations and explorations of this area. And so in and around the Wadi al-Hasa, you have a number of important sites surrounded by a well-watered area from, from different periods. And so there's not a lacking location. It's exactly where there is a picture of from the 6th century um, showing where Zoar is. And if we were to take this uh, even further, um, and you can, of course, see some of the publications of this online, but if you were to take this even even further and look at the 
the classical sources and, and later sources, Zoar is very clearly located in these sources, so much so that some people talk about it in connection with Damascus and Jerusalem. In other words, it's the third most well-known place behind Zoar or behind uh, Damascus and Jerusalem. It's not a place that's lost. We have coordinates from Ptolemy telling us where it is, and it's it's on the southeastern shore of the Dead Sea. We have uh, maps which illustrate this in great detail. We, and we don't just have it from uh, classical sources. We have it from Abu al-Fida, uh, who gives us even tighter geographical coordinates showing where uh, Zoar is in his day. And it's exactly where we have Gores Sophia today. And I'll, I'll post some of these on, on, the, uh, on, on, on the website. But ev- virtually everything that we have in, in terms of the classical sources, in terms of the later sources, GPS coordinates from Ptolemy, GPS coordinates from uh, the earliest Arabic maps, which were the best mathematicians of their day, place Zoar precisely where we have it on maps today, which is to the area of the southeast of the Dead Sea. And to put that even more in perspective, if we look at some of the maps from the uh, Crusader period and later, and the discussions about that, they actually show Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the plain inundated beneath the Dead Sea. Um, so we have the maps showing where they thought they were, and it's precisely what this traditional uh, traditional view is. Well, go ahead, go ahead, Kyle. No, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I mean the the bulk of the evidence. I think you've you've laid out, Chris, that any kind of attempt to identify Sodom to the north of the Dead Sea really has little archaeology, his well, particularly historical geography tradition um, to go to to commend it. And again, it's not to minimize the importance of the archaeological sites, particularly tell Mom we're talking about. It's just that. Um, all the evidence, the weight of the evidence suggests that this is not where Sodom is. This is not where the cities of the plain are. They actually are to the south uh, in potentially the southern basin, as, as we now know it today, of the Dead Sea. And this has been the, the tradition from a very early, early pay, uh, time, going back even into the biblical tradition, that already in the Iron Age, this is how it's understood. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I'll leave with these last two uh, last two thoughts. Um, number one, when um, and you mentioned this before, when Lot leaves the city, it mentions that um, when when Lot leaves Sodom, it mentions that he has to get to Zoar. He's going to go there, and it's going to be said that you know he can't. <laughs> It can't be destroyed. You know, that he's going to go to that city and the angel says, I'll let you go there and we won't destroy it. We'll destroy the other cities of the plain. You can, and we actually have the time it takes him to do that. He left in the morning and he gets there before noon. <laughs> so in other words, it has to be fairly close to Sodom. Yeah, it's grouped together in a number of different texts. But if we're taking the text at, you know, its face value, it's saying he could have gotten to Zoar in a few short hours from Sodom, which means it can't be any of these locations that, um, that Zoar can't be located, uh, north of where, uh, for, for Collins to be right, 
um, Zoar has to be further to the north. And we've seen that Zoar isn't at another location other than the area of Gorasfi. But even if it was at a different location to get from the places that he suggested all the way to Tel el-Hammam uh, in an area that's largely impassable um, by, um, you know, uh, it just it just doesn't work. Now, again, you could travel along the northern shore, but the answer, uh, excuse me, along along the eastern shore. But the question is, is this a, just a convenient way of fitting it in with his uh, with his view? And, and I think that it is. Lastly, um, you know, as we as we think about uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, twenty nine and thirty two and some of these other places where it's mentioned, it's a place defined by devastation. If you are at Tel El Hamam, it is not a place defined by devastation. It's a place that's beautiful. It's rich. It's 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 lush. The continuation of those conditions occur at some places the area of Tel Hamam, the plains of Moab, and Zoar in the south, in, along the Gorasafia near Wadi al-Hasa. The places that are desolate, uh, that are, uh, as, Deuter- as Deuteronomy says, they went and saw the devastation of the land. If you, if you don't obey, it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it will be burned by sulfur and salt. Um, he talks about it in Deuteronomy chapter 32, that if you don't obey, your vine will be like the vine from Sodom and the vineyards of Gomorrah, uh, uh, places that are defined by poison and, and, and destruction. So to continue to identify a place that's really nice, Tel El-Hamam, with with Sodom and Gomorrah, um, or to even talk about the Kikar of the Jordan being destroyed by this massive meteorite doesn't f- even fit with the memory of what the uh, event uh, portrays, which is to say a place of total destruction. Those conditions fit well with different parts of the Dead Sea, but especially along the southern shore where at different times the the Dead Sea would recede and you would see a land that's marked by total desolation. And so all told, um, the conditions of the southeastern shore um, fit with Zoar. The southern basin as an inundated Valley of Sedim slash part of the Kikar of the Jordan fit well with what we understand for the for the four cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim. I see no reason uh, to, su- to support the northern view. I also, and I think it's less problematic, don't see any real reason uh, to look for archaeological sites like Babedra, Numera, and some of the others that have been suggested um, because the text clearly says the place that they fought is now the Dead Sea. Uh, and that's in, in Genesis chapter Genesis chapter 14. And I'll, and I'll just maybe say one last thing about, um, about some of those archaeological sites. It's, it seems that those sites are actually even more too early now. Um, you know, even among very conservative uh, scholars who would uh, assume all the historicity here and assume that uh, that Abraham was around at, at the end of the uh, uh, third millennium BC, even for them, according to the traditional view, the uh, sites of Babidra, Numera, and others, they were seemingly abandoned at the end of the early Bronze Age, which we now know, according to carbon dates and, and other data, 
ended around 2500 BC. So even according to the most conservative view, um, which would put Abraham like around 2100 BC or so, um, we're still 400 years or uh, to put it in um, uh, perspective, uh, the time between the the translation of the King James Version and our day, um, we're, we're that length of time between when those sites are abandoned and um, the the time we even have Abraham arrive on the scene. And so neither that view of the Southern view of, of, of an archaeological site that we can identify or the view that... Um, you know, identifies it with Tel al-Hammam, seem to work all that well. And I still think that the inundated um, traditional view matches the geography uh, and can't match one way or the other, the archaeology. And so that's the way I'd end this uh, discussion. Uh, I realize in our discussion that we have some, some uh, we, we might have some that are uh, geographically challenged. Um, and, and I, and I'm aware of that. That's why I like to have lots of maps. Uh, so I will post a few of these maps in the episode, uh, on the episode page, which might be helpful to you as you're, as you're, um, as you're uh, listening along. Well, thanks, Chris. I think, you know, if anything we take away from, from this episode, you know, with, with this issue, it's, looking at any specific historical or, you know, biblical issue from a number of different perspectives, the archaeology, historical geography, the traditions, the topography, any number of things. And while in this particular instance, you know, not, I say none of them is going to give us a smoking gun that we might look for, we're still on really good grounds. And when we pull all the sources together, that ground is is quite firm. And again, in this case, I think you've built a really strong, strong one that, that Sodom and these cities of plains are located or were located to the South of the Dead Sea. And there's, there's little reason to, to put them someplace else. And, you know, this is what, what we're called to as, as scholars is to really delve into and look at all these different perspectives and to, to evaluate them. And so, I think it's been a nice case study to go through and look at the disparate types of sources that that pull together and, and see how they cohere actually quite nicely. So with that, I think this brings to end the this discussion of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, Sodom and the, the cities of the plain. Um, I, I think you probably could keep saying a lot more, but but we will stop now and say, um, Onscript listeners, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time. Until then, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>